This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Patty Ann Rogers. Patty Ann has published 15 collections of poetry and two book-length essay collections, The Dream of the Marsh Wren and The Grand Array, Writings on Nature, Science, and Spirit. She is the recipient of two NEA grants, a Guggenheim Fellowship, that sounds fancy, a 2005 Literary Award in Poetry from the Lennon Foundation, and the Distinguished Alumni Award from the University of Missouri College of Arts and Scientists. I should say arts and sciences, not arts and scientists, but you never know. I, in 2018, she was awarded the John Burroughs Medal for Lifetime Achievement in Nature Poetry, and she joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about her latest collection, Flickering. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Patty Ann. Well, Okay, thank you. I think I'll start, a, start in my childhood and, and we'll, then when we can develop how, the, how I became a poet. And people think they can write poetry. Everybody writes it. And I have people think I taught, I taught at graduate students in creative writing who want to be poets or, or are trying to be. And some that come into the class are taking it because they'll think it'll be easy. <laughs> Everybody can write a short book. Well, we can talk about whole poetry a little bit later. Uh, I'm curious to know, where does your story begin? Just tell me. Let's start off by talking about you. Okay. I was brought up in Joplin, Joplin Missouri, and lived there for, for 20 years, and then went to the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. And we lived in a modest house at a, on a street that was not paved, was not finished, and was a wonderful house to me. And about a block and a half, we had no sidewalk in front of our house. About a block and a half down the street was where it ended. Our street ended in a hardwood forest. And in, Mont in Missouri, the landscape is rocky and it has hills. And we had uh, orange streets because there's a lot of iron in the soil. Anyway, uh, the neighborhood kids like to go down in that forest. 
and it had a small creek in it and lots of big boulders you could climb up on and jump off of. And there was never anybody down there doing anything. It was just a wild forest. And some of the mothers in our neighborhood would not let their children go down. But my mother never saw it, gave a notion that she had any fear of anything that I would go on down there. And so I went with a, I went with a friend or two and we just walked around and we looked at things and we watched the crawdads trying to skitter under their leaves in the stream. And so every once in a while we get a surprise. And one of the one, one of the surprises that stays with me, I remember because it was frightening. We were down there among the trees by the creek and that we could hear rustling in the leaves and the, the, the grasses. And we, I was afraid to go up there to see what it was that was rustling there. And there was a boy down there older than some of the rest of us. And he said he'd go up and see what it was. And so he went up there and after he saw what it was, we weren't that afraid because, but we still didn't know what it was really. It was the tail of a lizard. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought, oh my gosh, why is this happening? This type of lizard, if it was caught, if a predator was chasing it and it got caught, and caught by its tail, it could release its tail. And so there was no blood, there was nothing. There's this, this, anyway, I never forgot that because I was afraid. And then I was amazed at this wonderful thing that the lizard had. When it got caught, it could just release its tail and run all without his tail. Yeah, anyway. Interesting evolutionary development for that lizard. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that led into my interest when we got into the biology classes and zoology classes. I stayed with me and other things too, because I they, there were wildflowers there and I always tried to take a flower to to my mother and then the wild onions. I knew she, I always begged her to make a, to cook them. And I don't yeah, she ever did. Anyway. So I wasn't afraid of, I loved it. I loved to go down and we'd have a lot of fun. And if we were never with an ad, adult to interfere our feelings about things. Yeah. And I, as I get a year or three older, if I got mad at my mother or somebody in the family, I always thought I'm going to down in the woods and I'm going to live there. <laughs> so I was packed my suitcase one time, but that didn't develop, but it was like a kind of freedom that I could go into those woods. I could look at what I wanted to look at for as long as I wanted to look at it. And so that state has stayed with me yeah. and on into college. And uh, I had a minor in zoology, but I also was very interested in English literature and, and American literature. And this is a, another experience I had that 
stayed with me and in the same way as the lizard's tail. And that is that our, my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Mrs. Garla, read us a poem by Longfellow. And in this poem, it's a metaphor. And none of us knew what a metaphor was in the fourth grade in Joplin, Missouri. And she told us, she read us the poem, and then she explained it to us. And she says, this is a metaphor. You are talking about one thing when you're really t illustrating another thing. And I thought, what in the world? How can you do that? And to me, it was some kind of it was bordering on magic, some kind of magic thing that you could do to write that way. And I could read his poem, but I don't know how much time we have. And it was, it's called, I Shot an Arrow into the Air. Have you ever heard that poem? It's ringing a bell. It's ringing a bell. <laughs> I think maybe you were in fourth grade too lunch. <laughs> Anyway, it's simple. It's a simple poem, and it's not hard to understand it, but it just seemed like a miraculous thing. You could do that. And that feeling has hung with me all the way up to wanting to write poetry because it really is a freedom. You can say anything you want to say if you say it beautifully enough, but you know, nothing. And at that time, the kids were all saying things like you can, when you live in America, you can say anything you want to say Just a little bit over the edge, but <laughs> uh, it's always, if you got somebody come in your yard, you don't want to play with them. You say, get out of my yard. And they say, this is a free country. I don't <laughs> out of your yard. Anyway, it, that, that's the kind of thing we were brought up with. And that we, freedom was something good and, and to be used and for good. And, and I, and I actually, poetry has, I think, still remains, still remains developing and saying things that nobody has ever said before, but has ring to it that makes you think there's something there. I'm going to keep that word. And, and also our vocabulary here in English is science is the same way. Science gives us wide vocabulary. And natural history workers <laughs> or students, when the country was developing, they had to give names to things because they didn't have names yet. Some of the birds didn't have names since Audubon uh, gave them words. I keep looking at you. Uh, <laughs> Tell me when, between the time when you were in fourth grade and you heard that poem from Longfellow to the time when you started writing poetry about how much time had passed. It's always, it's always been a hard thing for me to say. I, even as I had books published, I was still hesitant to call myself a poet. 
it just seemed like trying to name yourself a king or something. And so I am a poet now. And I didn't try to write on my own or show somebody that was not a teacher of poem. But in, I took a summer school class my year of graduation from high school and an English class to just to get enough to let, allow me to, to be able to take another class during the fall semester. Anyway, it wasn't. Anyway, and she just had us write paragraphs, but the paragraph had to have an opening statement that would tell the reader what the subject was going to be. And then it had to have an, a development of some kind and then a final statement, which would make an ending to the paragraph. So it wasn't really a poetry form. It wasn't a sonnet or in any of it was a, it was, but it was contained by some as fencing in and it, I didn't find that hard. I found it wonderful. I love to write short little thing like that and have it. And I could accommodate what she wanted in the paragraph. So that was really my first real effort to write something not poetry, but very near to it, having many of the restraints, which you find out once you can do them, they're not restraints at all. They're a structure that you can use. So anyway, I went to, let's see, I didn't have it, nobody in my high school. I didn't show the teachers or anybody, anything I was writing as poetry. And, oh, I wanted to tell this, in my growing up, my brother was a musician. He was five years older than I was, and he could play the violin, clarinet, the piano, the, I don't know what the other things were, and he was the drum major, the, the leading, the orchestra student conductor of the, his high school, our high school orchestra. And so we, I had music around me all the time. And he used to get, my mother used to get my brother a nickel for every morning he got up and practiced the piano before school. So I woke up to the piano, hearing piano music. And he was good. That's what the thing was. <laughs> he was really good. And um, then he went to the University of Missouri and was not around in the house all the time. And, but my mother played the piano and I played the flute and tried to play the piano, but I, it wasn't what I liked to do. And so, and when you write poetry and you don't want it to sound like prose, you have to know how not to sound like prose or to be tell, trying to be telling somebody something that they have to learn and, or like a lecture. And what helps that is that poet, poems are like songs and they don't have to have a, a accompaniment, but they do have to have a cadence that 
that twist you have to make. You as poet can make the cadence up, but you once you start that, you better adhere to it. Or I say I should. <laughs> anyway, I had a poetry semester in college with John Nyhart, who was a, a poet not contemporary. He was writing at that time, but he was an elderly man who had lived with Indians, Indian nation. What was his tribe, John? Zoom? Zoom. The Sioux Indians, and they gave him the name of a rainbow. Anyway, he could read a poem so that you could hear the music of it. And he also made us write, I say, I wanted to do it, two poems a week. And they had to adhere to a very kind of strict uh, structure. Not just to, I got, if I had my book here, I could tell you all the names of these different pot. I can't think of the right name, but a poem that has a strict form to it. And he could read it and he did chanted it. And so I knew how to hear a poem because I'd never even heard a poet, published poet, read a poem. And they, if they're good, they know pretty much how to read it so that you can pick up the tune, the movement of the poem. And it helps the understanding of a woman. And it's very helpful to writing a poem. If you have this going, if the word would just, some of them just fit. And you know it. And if you get to a line and it's bobby, you know what's wrong. You've gotten it out of the pace of it. So to me, it's what I, I wouldn't want to do anything else. <laughs> and I, I said that once when I was get, yeah. giving, a, giving a reading and I had two young boys at home. <laughs> oh dear. But this is what I like about is I like about poetry is that and children are poets because they don't, it doesn't bother them if they go chattering along, but they're singing and they're saying words and they usually stop after a while. And, and I had one son who, who gave me several titles for poem, for poems because he was just talking. And they, and they ask questions. And I, what I wanted to do with my poems was to answer questions that seem either ridiculous or not worthy working to understand. And uh, that because I wanted to explore and find out what could happen with if you get the right thing put together. And it's, it is, it's a real pleasure to do for well, me. Let's talk about your latest collection. What can you share with us about flickering? This was really funny because this title was, you know, when you are working on a, a manuscript, a new manuscript of poems, 
you usually don't title it until you get pretty almost finished because you don't know exactly how everything is going to be going. And to write a new manuscript poem is about three years or four. If you look at the contemporary poets, they have a new book coming out, usually between four and maybe eight years or something. And uh, let's see, where was I going with this? Oh, about the titles. And oh, my, my son said, children always ask questions. And I always listened. I always listened and never laughed or said that's crazy or anything. And uh, tried to use them in my poetry. Anyway. He said, what would happen if a giant swallowed the earth? That's the title of the poem. So I wrote, and I had that freedom feel. I could give it the answer that just seemed to strengthen the poem. And, and it was published in the journal Poetry, which is the oldest uh, poetry journal that is published in America. And so it was really a lift for me because that was really something wonderful to get. And I have a, the editor of the poetry take that poem and continue to take my poem. So I had a lot of support in that way. So that, that was lucky for me as, cause I was in college. I went back, let's see, I married my husband of now 60 years. Is that right? We have 60, <laughs> 63 years. <laughs> 63. Congratulations. Yeah, we did it. I have to tell you just a funny story because about, we were but in French class together and we were sophomores at college and he sat in a, by a window and then there was another boy and then there was me. And then everybody else. And so our teacher, our professor, when she handed back our test papers, she would hand back the best one first and then on down <laughs> until the poor guys in the back were, and they, she didn't seat them there, right out there. Anyway, John, my husband, always got his paper first. And always got my paper second. And that was through the whole semester. <laughs> and so when the semester was ending, the, our professor said, John and Patty Ann, I want to talk to you out in the hall. And I went, oh my gosh, what's this about? And she said, the head of the French department wants me to recommend or find two of my best students if they are interested in advanced French course. And John said, no, he wasn't interested. And I said, yes, I was interested. Oh, you should have said we. Yeah. <laughs> no, he did it for me. He said, after I said, yes, he said, yes, I was not interested. <laughs> and oh, she said, oh, good, you're interested. John said yes. Patty Ann said yes. I said yes. So let's go back in the room. 
So that was that we hadn't even had a date. I didn't know well had any what do you call it? Aims toward me at all. Anyway, he did and we got so we I guess we both each made it best choice. Only the French horse wasn't as good as the first one because she was really hard, a hard teacher. I'm sure. Anyway. Well, back, to, back to flickering. I just want to make sure we, we can plug your collection here a little bit for the listeners of Uncorking oh. Story. Do you have a, a selected poem you'd like to entice? Yeah, our I was, with? I could, and I do need that. I was heading toward why it's called flickering. It's because my lovely editor moved my due date up three months. I had, I thought I had three more months to work on it. Anyway, don't say that. Because he's a good editor, but then anyway, so he said he liked it. He liked that. Because I, I, I had just put it on there because I had to do something to get this written. And in the sh in a shorter time period, and other people seem to think they liked it. And my golly, it is a marvelous word. It my the same manager asked me to write an introduction. I'd already had written four books with him. Or it, it was through a penguin, and so I knew how we went along. And he'd never asked me to write an introduction before. So I had my most four, four most nearest, <laughs> most recently written didn't have an, an introduction. So I went ahead and did it. And, and, and as I wrote that introduction, this word got better and more and more interesting. And it could be a noun. It could be a pronoun adverb. It could, it, it, there's a bird of the woodpecker family is a flicker and it's called flicker and my friend flicka novel flicka is a horse you know this word is well, it's, square. it's very versatile and, and it was it's a happy little word i thought it wasn't going to mean anything and it went my son is a professor at northwest university and he, I was trying to get him involved in, because I like science and not many courts. The poets weren't writing about science, not about the, not going, getting technically with it, but you can, you read some of the things they have done and it's discovered we all are amazed by it. But nobody writes all about. So I preached on that every time I could. That that you, if you can, in these days, see a fetus developing in the womb, it's got to have some kind of message to you in your body. You've got to feel some. You feel some way about that, and other things that are miraculous or we, we not anymore maybe uh, you need to give people who are reading and living these things some kind of platform or language actually 
to talk about it. And uh, so anyway, he and my editor at this point was really wonderful all the way through from this point because he, we wanted to use, he, my husband, my son was working on the human brain and he was taking microscopic photographs of the brain on an electrical kind of grid so you could see he can, could, uh, the, the, these facts that are coming out. And lo and behold, he just said casually, I said, I got our editor. I said, could my husband write something, uh, my husband, my son, write something about the work he's doing and we can put it can be the last thing in the book. And that's a small essay about his, because we had wanted to put, the microscopic camera when they, it was taking the, as my son was taking photographs of what this electricity moving around the brain is doing, it made a beautiful art, not as beautiful as Hunter Biden, <laughs> it's a, a kind of an artwork. And I wanted that for the cover of this book, the cover of this book. And the, the designers of the book didn't want that. They had to think of something else. So three images, three photographs, and not of the same brain, but what they were seeing and described it in this small, it's just one page essay, but he described it to the readers in each time. And then it had to be a black and white photograph. It wasn't, it was colored, but I didn't get that. I did get the page for him to have a essay in there. And I wanted that because poets don't, a lot of them, and they're doing better actually, but they don't think poets have anything that they're interested in particularly. Patty Ann, I would like to end with us hearing one of your poems. Would you mind, would you mind reading one for us? All right. I was just trying to think, I, if you let me read two, I've got a very short one that follows my dedication of the book. Okay. And when people say flickering, they normally think of a light, a flame. And I wasn't going to write about that, and I thought, oh, I think I should. So this is a very short goal, and it took lots of drafts, 30, I think. And the title of it is, Here's the Dedication, and then Here's the Poem. Sure. Okay. So the title is, For the Song Delivered and the Moments Left. Once I watched a flame flickering in a fire curled by rocks. It was singing in a melodic foreign language. The humming cadence of its quiet sizzle sounded occasionally as the flame was swaying, dimming, uttering a soft, breathy 
click, one castanet tap, then a rush of light, golden and alive with intention. A spark, a tiny sun, flew into the night. I watched the gesture, listening to the words, the flame faintly flickering still, becoming smaller, weaker, nearer to earth, transforming itself into a blue pearl shining in ash at the root, not dead, not alive. It shivered once, shook itself into breath and out again into silence and disappeared. And I said, I understood everything. Wow, that's beautiful. I can almost hear it flickering as you read that. <laughs> Thank you. Now, you got to let me read another one. I'll but... let you read one more and then we'll have to wrap up. Okay. What would be the best one? <clears throat> Maybe something in French. <laughs> no way. Let me see. See, I haven't read these enough to know who, what the audiences are going to think of. You're already fine. We'll see yours. Okay. This is not very long. I have it. This is mine. This is uh, the contents are in sections. And this is the second section in the book. And it's called The Best of Bones. The Best of Bones. And I did read this actually in a bookstore last week. And it was people talked about and wanted to talk about. And oh, I, the when I would give a reading, people like to know why did you, how did you come upon this? And I had, was going to have a, x-ray me and the clinic and I went into the x-ray room and there was a small skeleton hanging there and I said to the x-ray person who was going to take the x-ray why do you have a skeleton hang hanging up it's not Halloween and she says I just love bones <laughs> I thought I gotta know what that's all about so this is that section on bones and the poem I'm going to read is called A Remnant, A Remnant. And this is after describing a lot of bones and stuff. That can be interesting also. Anyway, A Remnant. Once as a child playing in our attic, I found a small ceramic box forgotten in the dark corner of a desk drawer. I unlatched the lid, carefully lifted the white tissue inside to reveal the complete skeleton of a small seahorse, lying as if sleeping on a bed of cotton. It was more beautiful, more finely intricate, and than any ornament of lace, more entrancing 
than any diamond or ruby rock could be. So far from the sea, I looked a long time, didn't touch, left it as it had been, closed the lid, whispered a word, lay the tiny casket away in the dark desk, shut the drawer to light, still hearing the cresting sea, still feeling the swell of its current. That was that, and that was true. Very good, Patty. Thank you for joining me here on on Corking a Story. The book, the collection, is called Flickering. I imagine it is available wherever books are sold. It's also narrated and uh, available audible. Well, available as an audiobook. Very good, Patty. Thank you, Patty, and thank you for stopping by and Corking a Story. Congratulations on Flickering. And I wish you all the best with it. Thank you for listening and uh, grinning. And <laughs> I enjoyed it. Actually, I did. did. So we'll, I'll be watching for it, listening. That's for, right. I will let your publicist know when it'll go up. Good. Thank you. And I enjoyed it. Thank you, Vadian. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.